Welcome to Bio-Citizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth. Hello, this is Ursa, Director of Bio-Citizen New York. This week, Dr. Kurt Heidegger interviews Dr. Jean Hargrove, co-founder of the Modern Discipline of Environmental Philosophy and founder and editor of Environmental Ethics, the premier academic journal on the subject. Jean, can you tell us a little bit about your past, about the culture you come from and how it led to your career as an environmental philosopher and ethicist? I just came from Missouri, from St. Louis, and uh, I was interested in um, going into journalism, but... uh, I graduated from high school here early. I got a job at one of the newspapers in St. Louis as a, as a copy boy for about eight months. And while I was there, they told me that I shouldn't go to journalism school because they would teach me things that a newspaper would have to unteach me once I graduated. So they told me I should go into English instead. So I did. And then in my at the beginning of my junior year, I was supposed to... Uh, be in an honors seminar and suddenly after they told me I could get in they told me there was no room and this made me angry and I did a little reflection and I thought what am I doing with my life and at that point they uh, I decided that I actually liked philosophy more than English and I went over the um, philosophy department and they instead of seminars they offered a an undergraduate uh, thesis program. And so I did that. Then I I went on to graduate school. And the other side of it was that um, at the end of my freshman year, somebody came in and said, does anybody want to go to a cave? So I went and I ended up becoming a cave explorer. And I became identified with a particular cave. And after um, I got into graduate school and I spent some time in the Army during the Vietnam time, I came back and discovered that my favorite cave was in danger of water pollution. So I uh, started working on my dissertation, but also uh, trying to protect my cave from water pollution, which actually even the governor of the state was watching what I was doing. And environmentalists uh, that I became associated with said, you know, well, you're you're a specialist in philosophy with, with a focus on ethics and you're an environmental activist, so you should take care of the problem of environmental ethics. I wasn't very excited about that, but nevertheless, I said I'd think about it. And I I went on, after I protected the cave, I went off and did some research in uh, Vienna. When I came back, didn't have a job, and I thought, what can I do? So I, I applied for a Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship in Environmental Affairs, and I I did some philosophical stuff related to how my fight to protect the cave had gone on. And eventually, uh, while I was doing this research, the NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities, was engaging in um, some summer uh, workshops on engineering and ethics. So I was at Smithsonian, so I went over to the NEH and told them that they ought to do some research on the environment and ethics. And they talked to me and they said, well, there isn't anything written on this, is there? And I had to admit that there wasn't. So they told me I should, I should get a collaborative book with people in other fields and then there'd be some basis for having 
these summer uh, institutes. Uh, but then one day, I, uh, it suddenly dawned on me that it would be easier to create a journal. Then I wouldn't have to try to figure out who in other fields would fit in with the book. People would just send me things, and I could just pick the things that were good. And so that's uh, basically, I got a little bit of money together from, amazingly, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, amazingly, Monsanto Chemical Company. And we put out our first issue, and it worked, and the journal came into existence. And then I became interested in setting up a, a graduate program to teach environmental ethics, and I was at the University of New Mexico first. And after three years, uh, I was recruited away to the University of Georgia. And then after nine years there, I, I got a call from the University of North Texas. And they wanted to create a, a graduate program in, in environmental philosophy. And that's how um, it got started. And we started with a master's degree. And now we have a PhD program in environmental ethics. Well, it is the premier program in the United States, which I guess also means the world. So uh, my congratulations and appreciation for that major achievement, Gene. The many decades of work and the thousands of people you've worked with is very impressive. And BioCitizen School, in its own way, is a fruit on that branch of the tree that you've grown. I find it very telling and interesting and wonderful that it was a cave that <laughs> eventually uh, made the decision for you that you had um, what we call the wonder to connection to stewardship, uh, progress of character, that the w wonder of, of being in the cave, then being connected to it, and when it became threatened, protecting it. And I, I think that's a really instructive tale for a lot of the people within our community because we do love places and somehow have found ourselves thinking about these subjects very deeply just because we love a particular place. Now to a more speculative kind of question, is there a difference between environmental philosophy and environmental ethics? Well, not actually, but, um, it turns out that the better term is environmental ethics, even though environmental ethics appears to be very narrow. Um, in the 20th century, um, something in uh, philosophy developed called applied ethics and uh, or applied philosophy. And people um, in philosophy generally hated that because they, they didn't think that philosophy should be practical. So there became a real divide between philosophy and um, applied philosophy. And the um, and this has leaked out into the public, and they actually have come to think that philosophy is boring, but they think that environmental ethics is very important. And I actually called uh, my journal Environmental Ethics, but then I uh, had a subtitle that talked about philosophy, so it kind of drew it back in. But um, environmental philosophy is a more correct term from a philosophical point of view because it's not just ethics. It affects uh, every aspect of um, philosophy except maybe logic. So, it, um, go ahead. Well, maybe for our listeners, um, I should have asked you for just a provisional definition of what ethics is. How would you define ethics very simply for our audience? 
Well, ethics is a study of uh, correct and moral behavior. But um, as it turns out that uh, we have three periods in philosophy, and the first one was um, ancient. And in the ancient philosophy, they thought that, um, that the world as we lived in it was an illusion, and that only those things that uh, were important were what were permanent and indestructible, which eliminated the possibility of having to worry about the environment. And then in the medieval period, uh, people um, thought that if they started trying to protect the environment, that uh, they would be uh, messing with the domain of what belonged to God. And then um, the beginning of modern period started with Descartes, and he uh, set up uh, an approach in the meditations in which he decided to prove that the world existed, and that became very important to him. And so we went through about three centuries of uh, philosophy where they were busy wondering whether the world existed or not. And that made it very hard to, um, to have um, philosophy be related. And when I, when I told my teachers from my graduate school time that I, I was developing a field called environmental ethics, they were totally confused and had no clue as to, as to what uh, I was talking about. And I would have to talk to them for about a half an hour, and then they would say, well, maybe there's something there because uh, we go back and we teach uh, philosophers the entire history of uh, Western philosophy, and it shapes the way that we look at things. So um, people, ordinary people, are much more interested in a field called environmental ethics than they are environmental philosophy. Is that uh, because ethics is really devoted to decision-making, judging between right and wrong? And yes. philosophy is more of a historical and cultural study of attitudes. Well, I mean, uh, there's always new stuff go going on in philosophy in a more general way. But uh, I'd say that uh, environmental philosophy is a very important uh, wave. Let's say there are other uh, kinds of applied ethics, such as medical ethics and engineering ethics and so on. And these do, these do not impact the entire field of philosophy in the way that environmental philosophy does. You answered at the very beginning that they're kind of the same, and I can see how they feed into each other. And as a writer, um, you have actually educated so many people, including myself and a bunch of my friends. And one of the ways that I actually found you, who are now my friend and also, as I said, a board member, was through an essay published in Environmental Ethics about John Locke and what you called Anglo-American land use attitudes. And I think that this might be a good example of, of environmental philosophy and also of ethics, you know, and how uh, they aren't exclusive. You know, all judgments arise from some sort of context, and that's where the, the history is really important. And so could you perhaps introduce our audience to John Locke's theories of land use? And you traced his ideas through Thomas Jefferson. And since, you know, we're in the culture of the United States, we're all living out in one way or another, Jefferson's vision of this new nation, 
this uh, democracy in the woods, um, even though it's been a long time since the frontier was open, we still have a very frontier attitude towards our resources. And of course, that's why we're constantly arguing politically about, you know, should we continue to frack, et cetera, and kind of plunder our resources in a way that, you know, we're looking at the world and maybe Je the way Jefferson did is a treasure trove of inexhaustible resources, or do we need to revise this Jeffersonian view? So just go back to the beginning of my question again, what was it that made you go, gosh, I think I have to write about John Locke. Well, when I was trying to protect my cave while I was also writing my dissertation, I was saying certain things about uh, the cave, which actually was related to uh, biology, botany, geology, and to nature aesthetics and um, painting and um, photography and poetry and prose. So that there was a certain way, a way that I approached would basically, people wanted to know if the cave was beautiful and that would be... Uh, an important reason why they might want to protect it. But the people who were opposed to me would say, what right does anybody have to tell me what to do? I worked at land, therefore it's mine, and I have the right to do whatever I want. And um, Locke's theory of property was that when you work the land, you mixed the labor of your body with the land, and then you owned your body, and you owned the labor, and that the land itself wasn't worth much of anything until it had been mixed with uh, human labor. Now, it turns out that this view, which Locke took up and which Jefferson also picked up after him, people first became aware of it about 100 BC when the Germans uh, moved into uh, Europe and the Romans went up and looked at the uh, Germans kind of like uh, researchers might do, you know, to talk to the Indians or something, see what they thought. And it turned out that they had this idea that uh, of land holding, that if you worked land, then you had the right to hold it. And uh, then they also had this idea that when, when the landholder had children, um, instead of simply inheriting the land, they inherited the right to go make more land. And so the Germans uh, pushed the uh, Romans and the Celts out of their way and moved all the way across Europe. And this particular view of uh, land holding came to an end when um, they ran out of Europe to, uh, to be in. And so instead of property being a multiplication, it became a division. And so then you had to figure out what to do with all these children that you were having. So they go in the military and they go into a nunnery and uh, things like that. And, and then they, um, this produced uh, feudalism. When the British uh, went across to North America, they saw this, all this land that was, from their point of view, empty like uh, the Germans had seen it when they went into Europe. And so they wanted to reenact this particular thing again. And Jefferson was quite excited about this and recommended it, but the, uh, the United States government, when it came into existence, had no way to, to make any money because they, they didn't, didn't have like income tax or anything like that. So basically they sold people 
the lands to the West. And Jefferson was quite upset about that. And he said, uh, it will just infuriate the people and they will be unhappy. So the, the people themselves, the British settlers, wanted to reenact uh, this Germanic expansionism. So when the la lands were about to be opened, uh, government would find that there were people uh, already there and they um, they therefore had paid them something or let them have the land at a cheaper rate and this was called preemption acts and eventually about 1863 they passed a thing called the homestead act which actually uh, made the germanic approach the law of the land and this idea was also incorporated into various kinds of resource exploitation and so on so these farmers, when they were fighting me, they were talking about this Germanic view that went all the way back beyond 100, 100 BC. And so Jefferson, in his early writings, has uh, specifically talked about the Germanic ex expansion, but then later he, uh, he decided to Christianize it and made it that this was the way that God wanted us to do things. So that's... Um, and when you were defending your cave, in the essay, you explained that you began to see that the ideas that you've just expressed were actually circulating in every um, back and forth. The idea, I guess, would be that our concept of property descends from Locke through Jefferson, um, from these you know, very distant um, origins, 100 BC is pretty distant to most people. Is, is that correct, what I'm saying? Yeah, well, see, uh, a landholder was called a free man, a freeman. So the very idea of freedom is tied up with this particular idea, Germanic idea of uh, land holding and then land ownership. The idea of land ownership involves uh, deeds. There's actually two traditions in um, in Europe, there's the Northern tradition, which is a Germanic one I've been talking about. And the Southern one is, you could, no matter how long you're on the land, you can't own it because you need to have a deed. And when the uh, people from the United States were invited into Texas, they, uh, there was a big conflict there because the Spanish notion of um, land ownership involved deeds. And the uh, U.S., former U.S. citizens revolted against it, and that's, it was this conflict that caused Texas to eventually become an independent country and eventually a part of the states. And it's, uh, it's still going on, you know, I discussed this in my classes in, in early days, and it turns out that when Texas became a part of the United States, one of the uh, requirements was that if an old land grant was discovered in in Madrid and some uh, archive, then Texas and, and the other states that were Spanish connected have to um, trace down the, the descendants of the people who got the land grant, and then uh, they have to be compensated for the fact that they don't have the land. And this one woman uh, in my class came up and said, you know, I've gotten money out of one of those. <laughs> Wow. So it still goes on. Did you save the cave? <laughs> did the, uh, yes. did you prevent the pollution from leaking down? It was leaking down, but it wasn't very noticeable at the time. But what happened was because of uh, my efforts to protect the cave, people were astonished to discover that the, uh, 
the cave itself was the largest uh, object in the county. And they were worried uh, amazingly about, was the cave beautiful? And uh, they were open, you know, to the other side of all this. Um, much like um, there was, as I mentioned before, there was biological things and uh, aesthetic things that were developing. And so in the middle of the 19th century, suddenly that's when uh, people started caring about protecting land. And, you know, and so we ended up having uh, Yosemite and then uh, Yellowstone and then many other uh, places being protected by acts of Congress. Well, this chapter is number two in your Foundations of Environmental Ethics. And we're going to post the chapter so that people can read in more depth about these subjects because the issue of property is on everybody's mind. It, in some ways, uh, gives us freedom, but since all you know, ecology teaches us that uh, there is really no separation between you know, the elements, between climate and geology, and certainly uh, between habitats and creatures and DNA, et cetera, that the idea of property um, in many ways is not current with our scientific and maybe even cultural understandings and values. So this is a great chapter for us to, to learn about, uh, you know, how it is that we think that property, we, maybe uh, we've never actually thought about where it came, who came up with it and how we ended up with it is kind of the center, even of the U.S. Constitution. And so we'll move on to our next subject, which is going to allow you, Gene, the opportunity to, to ramble and brainstorm a little bit, because this is more of an open-ended question. As a part of your studies and your teaching and your career, you have been very interested in these political and cultural uh, conflicts, and are certainly a participant, like I am and everybody listening in these conflicts, whether we know it or not, we see uh, the political culture kind of doing whatever it wants to do and we'll stamp our feet or we'll applaud, but it is a kind of drama that we watch. And you have a person named Bill Bennett that you have talked to me about before who you're interested in. And this and just discussing him a little bit and telling us about your interest in him, I think might open up for the for our listeners another door to understanding uh, you and your work. So, who is Bill Bennett, and and why are you interested in him, and and why would our audience be interested in him? Well, I don't think anybody needs to be interested, particularly in Bill Bennett, but he uh, he was a philosopher or is a philosopher, or was. He's most famous and generally as having become a, a drug czar during the, I think, uh, the Reagan administration. But uh, when, when Reagan became president, uh, he appointed uh, Bill Bennett to become the head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, NEH. And Bennett had some, what I thought were un, unusual views about the NEH, which was he didn't like ethics, so that they had a um, thing called Science, Technology, and Human Values program, 
and he altered it so it just just became the science and technology program and put a requirement in there that uh that not, nothing doing, having to do with ethics would be funded under the program. And as I mentioned earlier in this uh, conversation, I was interested in uh, developing the journal Environmental Ethics to produce material so that there could be um, uh, institutes on uh, environment and ethics. And I was planning on doing it through the NEH but when I eventually submitted a proposal, although nearly everybody said that my uh, my my uh, program was good to excellent, uh, I was turned down on the grounds that that it was dogmatic and that I would indoctrinate the people who went to the institute into my views. I was told I could resubmit, so a year later I resubmitted and pointed out that I was going to present differing views and uh, I was told that my program was totally terrible because I was suggesting that uh, ethics was totally arbitrary and dependent on how each individual thought and and had nothing to do with cultural traditions or anything and I was told that I should never submit anything to the National Endowment for the Humanities ever again so I uh, was concerned about this and I looked back and I discovered that um, that basically uh, at the primary and secondary school level for two centuries, basically, there's been efforts to prevent the teaching of ethics in uh, primary and secondary schools. And Bennett was trying to bring this uh, level up to, to prohibit the teaching of ethics at the university level as well. And all of this is part of a, the culture war and today we normally think of the culture war as having to do with uh, single gender marriages and uh, uh, sex changes and worrying about which bathroom someone's going to go to. But originally the culture war started at the be very beginning of the 19th century when Catholics started coming to the United States and discovered that, that all the schools were teaching Protestant religion and ethics. So they decided to start their own schools parochial schools to protect their children from uh, all this Protestantism. And to try to get the Catholics to go to the schools, they started taking the religion and the ethics out. And by 1860, they had succeeded in doing all this. After the Civil War, people began to worry about um, the fact that ethics wasn't being taught in the schools. And uh, psychologists said, we can solve that problem because we can uh, just teach it in such a way that nobody knows that ethics is being taught in the schools. We just pose problems to the children, and when they try to solve them, they'll all come to the same answers because, as Immanuel Kant put it, all minds work the same, so that that meant that ethics was built into the mind. But it turns out, actually, that ethics is built into the cultural traditions of a society, and that uh, even though... It wasn't being taught to the children in the schools. It was, uh, they were picking it up in what we would call tacitly. The problem with this, though, is that uh, when you teach ethics without um, anybody knowing that you're doing it, then you don't have any ethical terminology. And everybody thinks that they invented their ethics themselves. And so if you ask a four- or five-year-old child, they will tell you that uh, 
their values are that they invented them and they don't have a clue that that their values are part of a a cultural framework that goes back centuries upon centuries and people have been writing things and so on. And so even though we have these current things in the in the culture war that people are arguing about, most of the stuff that we take for granted was argued about in the past, especially with philosophers and so on, because everybody thinks that they've invented all their own ethics. It's very, very hard to do anything uh, with environmental ethics. Uh, One of the people who wrote a paper in my journal expressed it this way, that when, when you have an environmental hearing, people will stand up and say, I sometimes think, and, uh, I've kind of felt this and so on. And they tell you how they feel and, uh, they will act like, like they're expressing what it is that, that they're doing as if it's a totally new thing rather than part of the cultural history of, uh, the society. And everybody listens to it politely and understands it because they're all part of the same society and they all have the same ethical and value attitude. But it makes it very difficult to express anything because the culture war, going all the way back to the beginning of the 19th century, makes it difficult to actually discuss these things in a very, very good way. Some of the successes of the culture war in the 1820s, people had babies and they didn't want them. They'd just throw them in the alley in the back and let them die. So gradually, in the early culture war, we developed the idea that uh, you shouldn't uh, kill children after they were born. But we're still working on what do you do if you want to avoid children? And so part of the culture war is people trying to prevent women from having birth control and and having abortions if, if they're raped and things like that. So anyway, the ability to do much of anything with environmental ethics is greatly impeded by the fact that there's this object of trying to prevent people from openly discussing their values. I was permitted after about five years at the University of uh, North Texas from doing anything with children about environmental ethics because they thought that I would be too radical and that people would sue the university because I talked to them. But eventually, uh, this particular summer institute in, in my building said, you know, we've, we know what we're doing and we're getting bored, so we're going to let you do, do what you want. I did it that this one summer, and it turned out that I, I did various uh, classes at the elementary school level. And one of the problems, well, the main problem in environmental ethics in the beginning was what kind of value is value. And the thing is, do we have values uh, that are valuable for their own sake, called intrinsic values or instrumental values? And this uh, was being debated in the 1970s by biology professors, and they, they really wanted to go beyond just instrumental value, and they called it non-instrumental value. But we have many centuries of intrinsic value versus instrumental value, which was brought, to, the term was brought to an end by John Dewey, who said that he didn't like the definition of intrinsic value by someone. But if we went back to Plato in the Republic, 
he has Socrates say, uh, some things are valuable for their own sake and some things are valuable for their use. And officially in um, economics and the social sciences, the view now is that things are valuable for their use and that the rest is just um, emotion. And so uh, basically uh, these children we discovered basically thought that they invented their own values and they cared about a lot of things, but they, they thought that ethics was a, a motivism. And I gave them this little thing, which was to, to determine what the main uh, species in Texas was and to go, come up with a reason. And it turned out that nearly everyone gave an intrinsic value argument and they were quite happy to know that uh, their argument wasn't just how they felt, but it actually was part of their, their cultural history and traditions. So that's a block to bringing uh, environmental ethics into a proper place in policy because all the policy people are affected by the, by the idea that all value is instrumental. Well, I'm glad that I let you have free reign and, and run wild <laughs> with that uh, open question, Gene. You have just articulated so much. Bill Bennett began your disquisition there, but as we were running with you, listening to you, I think that some of us thought of Orwell and how those in power, if they can control the past, they can shape the history of, of the present and control the future too. And also the lack of, of ethics in education, the critical inquiry into values is always kind of sloppy and everything, and maybe you can't test to that, but it certainly brings up teaching to the test and what has happened with our academic in institutions in trying to pretend that, that they are capable of teaching valueless or value-neutral subjects. And so I'm just going to leave the query open because what I admire most is your story about how persistent you've been in kind of the back alleys of our educational system at the top and the bottom, consistently defending philosophy and the value of ethical training. And I, just to conclude that I, we look around the world and we can see that decisions are made that are are perplexing at the very least and extremely destructive um, in a kind of obvious way. And when we hear the story that you've told, we begin to understand how somebody like Bill Bennett, who was the Secretary of Education under Reagan, could have really dismantled a, a crucial and central part of our educational system. And so I'm just going to have one last question for you, Gene. Let's say that you, that you were a Bill Bennett type and you were the Secretary of Education, where would you place environmental philosophy slash ethics? Would it be a side subject like it is, or where, where would it be if you had your druthers? I think that ethics needs to be brought in like in, beginning in first grade so that people have a terminology so that they can discuss it and that they need to know that their values are part of a history you know, in the society so that they can articulate these views and not just say how they feel. And um, so this uh, really hurts people in, in other fields. For example, 
when when we started environmental ethics program, the idea was that it would be interrelated with biology. And the biology people, because they hadn't had any philosophy and hadn't studied ethics and and had no terminology, were totally shocked by the idea that things could be valuable for their own sake or intrinsically valuable. And they would struggle with it through the entire semester and the course and still be confused about it afterwards. But all of this could have, could be resolved in first and second grade and life would be much, much easier. So one of my focuses is to try to bring ethics back into primary secondary school rather than try to get it out of uh, the university level. Well, that's a great answer. So you would bring it back to the elementary school and you have some protégés who are working on environmental ethics for children and the BioCitizen School in its own way is very much involved in that effort to recreate our educational system. And I'm just going to thank you, Gene. It's been a fascinating discussion, and I love hearing your stories. And let's do this again, okay, in a month or two, all right? I guess. Okay. I guess we covered everything, actually. I don't think so. You have uh, traveled to China many times. Maybe uh, we'll talk about what you did in China next time, okay? Well, we're going to sign off. Thank you for another session of BioCitizen Banner. Goodbye, everybody.